Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. Who's really got it sorted out here, right? Is it the person who's endlessly, and I put myself in this bucket, who's endlessly looking for the next thing, the big thing, the thing to change, right? The, the more impact, the never satisfied with now. Is that you know, a greater order of being that you're constantly striving for the next thing, or is the greater order of being, being present, you know, being where you are, you know, who's to say that if you looked at the happiness meter, <laughs> who's, who's pegging out higher? I, I, you know, I don't know. And I think there's, I find more appreciation over time for the lessons of those old, earlier times as I, as I get older, right. As the, I guess they would say, right. Hopefully wisdom makes you smarter. At least it lets you think about it a little bit more. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Doing creative work can be kind of lonely, and that's why we built the Unmistakable Listener Tribe. The tribe is a community for professionals to connect and support each other. Everything is designed to help you grow your business and share what's working and what isn't. And that's true whether you're a business owner or an artist. You'll get access to feedback, live conversations with guests, and so much more. By joining the tribe, you become part of a community of creators who all support each other, and it's completely free. Hopefully, I'll see you there. Visit unmistakablecreative.com slash tribe to join. Again, that's unmistakablecreative.com slash tribe. Maggie, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Super thrilled to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So I actually found out about your work because somebody from your team wrote in and told me a bit about what you guys do uh, at Eureka Ranch. And I thought, yeah, this is right up our alley. Like I loved everything that you guys were up to. Uh, I loved your story and your background. So on that note, uh, I want to start asking, what did your parents do for work? And how did that end up shaping and influencing the choices that you've made throughout your life and your career? Yeah, golly, it's a great question. So my mom uh, was a nurse in various forms and fashions in a, in a hospital and other settings. My dad uh, worked for a bottling company. So he was a manager and, and the Pepsi bottling company, um, first running the truck and then kind of working his way up. And And I think... I know uh, that his work ethic just had such an impact on me and the choices that I made. But, you know, we grew up in a small town. I grew up in a small town, southeastern Ohio, part of Appalachia. You know, it kind of had a, its own its own space, its own energy and all that kind of fun stuff. And um, just they're, they're just good, solid people. I don't even know how to sh- describe it. Just, you know, just honest, uh, smart. Gosh, my mom is super smart across the board. My dad works incredibly hard, also smart. And I think part of his work ethic certainly um, impacted me, but they, they were always open to so many, so many different things. And I think that's probably part of why my choices have led me to other places in in general. And they also indulged me as I was a teenager, (laughs) trying to not do anything that they say and recommended. And I think that part probably stuck more than anything else, um, just to do the contrary, you know, to fight for the thing that wasn't fought for. Uh, well, you know, I, I'm always fascinated by people who grow up in small towns because uh, I've kind of had this bizarre sort of childhood of, you know, growing up in small towns, big cities and, you know, different places that are kind of a blend. And something I always find with people who grew up in small towns is is they have this sort of 
you know, understanding of human behavior and psychology in a way that other people don't because they just seem to have an awareness. I know just because of the fact that in a small town, everybody knows everybody and everybody knows everything. So I wonder, what did growing up in a small town teach you about, you know, relationships, human behavior, and, you know, sort of connecting with other people? Yeah, it's, well, that's a great question. You know, what's funny is, just a couple of weeks ago, I found myself in another, you know, one stoplight town, right, driving through, and the nostalgia kind of hit me as I as I came through the whole thing. And I think at the time, um, growing up in a small town, I thought, gosh, you know, how overly simplified things had become, right? How how overly simple they were, and that big towns must have much more going on, which was obviously where my life took me was was to much bigger towns. But now, being older and reflecting on that. You know, I'm not so sure that savvy and sophisticated is any better in any other Mm -hmm. way. I mean, there's some things that are accomplished in a small town because it's networked, because you know who to go to, um, because you know kind of how the system operates as as a system. You see the whole system Mm -hmm. inside you, uh, inside, and you can see it all play out, right? There's fewer nuanced areas. You can kind of see the whole. And I think that as it impacts work, as it impacts how people innovate and think, it got me thinking about like systems thinking, right? From an early mm-hmm. on, um, early on kind of age, because you can see it more. When you're looking at a smaller piece, you can just see the whole a lot more. And I think that whole kind of thinking makes a big impact on how we can be more successful as leaders is seeing more things as a whole. Yeah, you know, it, it's kind of funny. I, I think about small towns and how uh, people tend to know their neighbors. You know, there's always somebody you can call. At, and it's kind of funny. I, you know, my parents, you, you being at their house, I realized I don't think I've ever talked to any of their neighbors more than once in the entire time. <laughs> in 20 years, I like, I don't even know what the people who live to the left of us look like. And my mom was like, oh, they're a Korean couple. I'm like, I don't think I've ever seen those people come out of their house. But, you know, so one, I, I wonder why you think that has happened over time. Like, why have we become so sort of isolated. I mean, we literally live next door to each other, but I don't think I would feel comfortable going over to the next door neighbor saying, hey, I'm having a serious problem. Uh, it, like they would be the last people I would even think to turn to. Right. Well, you know what? I mean, we've, uh, I'm probably older than you are a little bit, but um, you know, I lived in a small town pre-internet. <laughs> uh, maybe not. Maybe yeah. we're about, yeah, it could be anything. But, yeah, I think um, we're probably about the same age based on when you graduated yeah. from college. Yeah. Okay. There you go. Um, yeah. You remember, right? When we were in college, we still heard the beep, beep, beep from dial-up, right? So earlier oh, yeah. than that, right? <laughs> when we were in small town, right? It's It was a totally different time. Like if you were to be networked, if you wanted to know what was going on, you didn't have the option to stay inside your four walls, right? Unless you're going to watch the four television channels that you got or maybe cable, right? So there was mm-hmm. no, there wasn't any real connection to what else was going on unless you made it, right? Unless you got out there and knocked on the door. Now... Now there's so much more, you know, small town or otherwise, that you can hide in a corner. You can go away and and sort of not connect or connect more through the digital lens. But there mm-hmm. was there was a human element at a certain time, and I think that I hope that stayed. Again, I don't live in a small town anymore, so I can't say that yeah. it's still still there. But there was a, I wouldn't even say novelty to it. There was just a there was a fabric of society that you could feel, right? You, you kind of mm-hmm. had it under your skin. And, and I feel like in many cases, you know, we kind of get away from that in the digital era. Yeah. So, you know, I, I want to ask you this um, question about growing up from a small town from two sort of angles. Uh, you know, I had a guest here once who taught us about the power of environment and he described the town he grew up in as, a, you know, very much like you, a one stoplight town with three bars and how it was the kind of place where, you know, people didn't seem to amount to much. Now, there are two questions that come from this. One is, you know, how is it that people overcome environments like that and transcend them to go and accomplish big things? On the flip side of that, one of the things that I feel I've seen happen as a byproduct of the sort of personal development work that I've done in the communities that I've been part of is there's almost this elitism of people who teach entrepreneurship or personal development that makes them look down up on people who, you know, do simple, live very simple lives. And, you know, like I've been writing this new book and, and you know, I, I wrote the section called, you know, an extraordinary life it might be more extraordinary than you think, but yet we somehow, you know, look down on people who, you know, collect a paycheck, go to a dine to five job. I'm like, who's to say that's not a perfectly good life. And so I realize those are two weird questions that kind of contradict each other, but I'm wondering, you know, one, how do people transcend those environments? Then two, what do you have to say about that other part? Yeah. You know, what's so funny is I find myself in that same mind space of your second question worn out than ever before. You know, having grown up in a small town, felt the need, right, to get out of it. But now looking back and reflecting on so many things, it's like, well, who, 
who's really, <laughs> who's really got it sorted out here, right? Is it the person who's endlessly, and I put myself in this bucket, who's endlessly looking for the next thing, the big thing, the thing to change, right? The, the more impact, the never satisfied with now. Is that, you know, a greater order of being that you're constantly striving for the next thing? Or is the greater order of being, being present, you know, being where you are, you know, who's to say that if you looked at the happiness meter, (laughs) who's who's pegging out higher? I, I, you know, I don't know. And I think there's, I find more appreciation over time for the lessons of those earlier times as I, as I get older, right? As I guess they would say, right? Hopefully wisdom makes you smarter. At least it lets you think about it a little bit more. But I think there's, I think to your, to your first point, right? How do you sort of break free or break out? You know, I think obviously intrinsic motivation makes, makes the biggest impact across people. And I feel like there's a couple of ways that those are triggered. There's either emotional things and states and being of mind, like a positive pull. Like, I feel like there's more. I feel like there's more Mm -hmm. out there for me. So I must then go out and find it or the opposite, which I have no data to support this, but just a personal perspective that there's, it's more, I don't want what's currently in front of me. Right. I I want to get away. You know, it's a, it's a fighting against the negative or even in the case of, even if you're going for a positive to make change, it's the fighting the negative of, I don't want to look back and wish I did, but didn't actually do it. Right. It's fighting Mm -hmm. the guilt of that or fighting the, just the complacency that that could become um, something else. Um, so yeah. I think there's methods and, and ways to get out of those situations. Again, if there if it warrants getting out of, it's all kind of where you are as a human, right? And where do you find satisfaction? And and I think you can find it in lots of places. Um, yeah, you know, depending on where you want to go. Yeah, it's funny because I think for me, kind of like yourself, like I don't think I would have thought about this this way, you know, when I was younger, when I was younger, it was like my parents live in suburban hell, I want to get out of here. And, you know, I'm never coming back to this town ever again. And now, you know, I realize that it actually has a lot of great things about it. Granted, I think it's the most boring place on earth still. <laughs> but, uh, but that's just because I don't have friends here. You know, my sister, on the other hand, does. So, but... <clears throat> So one of the things I wonder is what kinds of careers do people who grew up where you grew up end up having? And, uh, you know, like what is your, the average high school kid's life like in a town like this? Yeah, again, good question. You know, I'm, I moved out of that town. Basically, when I went to college, my parents had moved out of the town. So I hadn't stayed super connected uh, to a lot of folks. I know a lot of folks went into, into healthcare, you know, into the nursing field. There's a great community college right down the road. Um, and a lot of people did that. Um, and went on to those careers. A lot of people went off to, to college and still stayed relatively uh, within the state. And a lot of folks uh, didn't and stayed home. There's a great there's a power plant in town, or at least it was uh, when I was there. And there were some options for those kind of things as well. Um, I think a fair amount of people stayed local, you know, and, and kind of, you know, live right where they grew up, um, which is great. And I'd say, you know, a, a portion certainly have gone on to do... Um, some other things as well that are, you know, I think there's a couple doctors in the mix, a couple attorneys in the mix, uh, a couple folks that work for, you know, big companies that, are, that live in someplace else. But I think there was a lot of people who loved where they lived, you know, and so a lot of people that were quite happy staying in a great town that was great for them. Um, but I think it, it, I don't, I don't know that a lot of people went to a great distance to leave. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. 
But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community. And that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Yeah. You mentioned that your parents kind of, it sounded like kind of gave you free range to explore, to do what you wanted. Uh, Did they give you any particular advice on careers? And uh, if not, you know, what did they teach you about making your way in the world? And how did that end up um, shaping where you've ended up? Oh my gosh. You know, what's funny is now I have kids of my own, you know, so I'm, I'm living the curse of what I wish you would, right? So, <laughs> so going through Don't the worry, same we're gonna, Oh, that was going to be my next question. Like I, I was, there's no way I was going to let you get out of this conversation without asking you <laughs> about that. But you know, what's funny is, is as I reflect on my own parenting too, I realize that they didn't push. They really didn't in any one particular direction. It's not that they weren't vested, right? It's not that they didn't care, but how much of an impact I didn't realize that that made, that they were truly, you know, I had student loans across the board, wherever I was going, I knew I was going to be paying a lot and they paid a lot too. And it was, again, we, we were, uh, you know, a class of family that didn't have all four years of mine paid by any stretch. And some schools really were off the table, because they just couldn't afford it, even with student loans. Um, But they were very, whatever you want to do, like truly, truly, whatever you want to do. And, you know, but not in an overbearing kind of way, not, I mean, they were tried and true. And I think parents, you know, definitely kind of try to act this way where you, you don't care and you want your child to be happy. But I, you know, they, they, they made me believe it, right. Whether I was you know, hawking newspapers on the corner or, you know, leading the next new revolution. Um, they really did leave it open. And I find myself trying to reconnect to that at times because there's so many yeah. things where I feel like I've figured out parts of life and I want to impart that on others. It's like, uh-huh. dude, they, they remind me. And I, again, I learned lessons from life from way back in the past in the present. And that yeah. is not saying so much, like, let it be like, it'll be all right. You know, people are going to find their way. Things aren't going to be terrible. Um, and I think that, that, that made me rise up in a way I wouldn't have expected. Yeah. It's funny. I I was having a conversation with a friend the other day and he has a, uh, you know, he has a, an infant and a teenage daughter. And I asked him, I said, do you find yourself telling your teenage daughter things that your mother told you you swore you would never say Mm -hmm. to your kids? And And so I wondered what, experiences those you have like do you find yourself repeating things that you thought you'd never repeat that your parents told you because i i always wonder i mean I'm, <laughs> I'm i don't have kids but like half the time I'm like i'm definitely not going to do that and then i feel like you know when reality sets in i'll probably do exactly that 
Oh, exactly. Exactly. Well, you know what I found um, is it was one opposite thing or one thing that I noticed about, about being brought up. So one, one comment that my mom made, and she probably made this on such a, like a non-event for her, right? That's the trouble I find with parenting is that you never know when they're tuning in. (laughs) You never know when this next phrase should be really clever because right now their, their ears are open as opposed to other times. And there was this moment when my ears were open um, and my mom said, it was a quote and I can't quite get it right, but it was basically sort of keep your mouth shut (laughs) in situations (laughs) where you're not quite sure what to do. Otherwise prove yourself the fool that you are, right? If you really don't know anything, it's best to just stay silent and not contribute to, you know, that will just, and, and that, I mean, that's sure. That's good advice. If you don't know what you're talking about, don't talk, but I took it and echoed it. Right. And cranked it up on steroids and just went, (laughs) okay, I'm just not, I'm not going to say much of anything to anybody really much about, you know, and I'm just going to be a quiet, you know, pacifist and have my own opinions about stuff. And it's taken me a long time to unseat that. And if you asked her, she'd be like, I never put that in her head. But, oh, but yeah. Tough, I feel like every right? parent will deny things that you think you could have sworn you told them. It's like you said this <laughs> and they'll deny it till the day they die. Exactly. Uh, right. Or the intention behind it. Right. Because there's so uh, many things yeah. that are missed in communication these days. So totally. Um, yeah. That's what I worry is the moment when they're paying attention is the moment I'm doing some, I'm saying something totally asinine or something yeah. definitely not worth building a lifestyle around. And uh, well, I think the, the most wise piece of advice I ever got about parenting was from my friend, Sarah Peck. She had just become a mother. And I remember we had her here. I mean, she's been a guest multiple times and she literally, I think it was on the second kid. She said, well, here's how it goes. She's like, parenting is this giant shit show. She said, you basically (laughs) tell this kid, Hey kid, we're going to screw you up. And your job is to go to therapy and fix all the things that we screw up when you Mm -hmm. get older. And Mm -hmm. I thought, okay, I guess, you know, like, I, I think I had this sort of ridiculous idea that I could ask all this advice about parenting and I might be immune to all this madness, but apparently not. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Well, I always find what was, uh, I told someone recently, I was a fantastic parent. Best there was before I had kids and then they come <laughs> and then you're like, oh. <laughs> not so much now. All those things you say, I would never. Yeah, we did all those things. Um, you're right. Cause there's no, right. Or, or maybe we just need more funding. If people traditionally save up for college, they traditionally save up for the wedding. I think we also have a stockpile of, and here's the, here's the counseling dollars to go yeah. where you can undo all the bad <laughs> that I did. Right. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, let, let's talk specifically about your career trajectory. I mean, I know you went to university of Miami. So what led to Eureka Ranch? Like, how did you end up here, uh, doing what you're yeah. doing today? Right, right. Well, I would be um, a bad alumni if I didn't correct. It's Miami University. Oh, and, I'm sorry. Uh, you, <laughs> no, it's okay. It's a big joke between the two schools, the big rivals, because they're <laughs> constantly one. But Miami University is in um, is in Ohio. It's in uh, north of Cincinnati, and that's actually what brought me to the doorstep of my career for the most part. So it's great school, four year school. Um, in one of my classes in entrepreneurship. And they have a great program now. It was just starting when I was at school. And so when I was first starting, they had adjunct professors teaching it. And they were typically somebody who had started their own business. And it was very sort of case study style class, right? You read about you read about some scenario for some business. You say, here's what I would do, like you could. Uh-huh. And then that was, that was how the class worked. And so one of the instances of the class, we, um, we read about this crazy place called the Eureka Ranch. And um, it looked like a fun house. It looked like Pee Wee's Playhouse meets the Muppet Mansion meets like Target Practice all in one. It seemed uh, just incredible that this such a business would would exist. But, you know, they invented ideas and played for a living. And so um, I read about that. And then I went off, you know, interviewing like a prudent and reasonable person would. And we were one of those schools that had a lot of people um, from the... Gosh, at the time, big six, you know, Deloitte, mm-hmm. uh, you know, all those accounting and um, consulting firms. And I had a job lined up with one of them and it was very reasonable and it was wonderful pay for over, it was overpaid, frankly, for the age I was. And for some reason, I was just, I couldn't get this Eureka thing off my mind. And so I was, I just said, screw it. I'm going after it anyway. And I literally already had the job at the consulting firm. Um but I, I just kept showing up. I kept calling. I kept being a nuisance. I remember calling one of the employees, picked up the phone for like the sixth time or something. And I'm still 
still remember him to this day. And, and I, he says, okay, fine, Maggie, like what makes you so special? And he, remember, I'm talking <laughs> to a creative agency. And I said, I think outside yeah. the box. And he was like, are you kidding me? You think, how many times do you think <laughs> I hear that? And I thought that was the least creative thing I could have said, but I was so impressed with myself. I sent them like a, a PowerPoint that automatically, automatically advanced itself as my resume with my picture. And again, at the time, <laughs> yeah. Rev- revolutionary. But anyway, um, long story short, I just kept pestering, showed up for an interview, and they were hiring for apprentice inventors. And um yeah. I made enough of an impression that I could that I could stay and then let me let me hang out. But it was this tiny little thing, right? A nothingness of a class, but it just yeah. seeing something really meaningfully unique really can make a difference. And it did. Yeah. Well, that raises so many questions for me, uh, you know, about this, uh, you know, I, I do want to come back to this whole case study thing because I, I remember writing this uh, piece on Facebook about the things you can't learn from reading books and mm. we'll come back to that because I think there's something very uh, interesting there when you mentioned the case study thing. So, but I think what really struck me about this, and this is something I've asked a lot of people is you seem to have recognized this at a really early age. Like you saw it, you know, at your first job, I hated my first job with a passion. And I never once thought to leave because I'd been taught for so long to just choose from the options that had been put in front of me, as opposed to notice the possibilities that surrounded me. And, you know, like, why do you think that is? Why did that happen to you? Like, why do you think that spark got ignited? And like, you had the, I mean, like, when you're describing this to me, I'm almost imagining, you know, sort of the Charlie Sheen pestering Gordon Gecko experience to you know <laughs> get a meeting in his office. You know, for those of you who are too young to know who the hell Gordon Gecko is or Charlie Sheen is, just look it up on the internet. Uh, but you know, like that's the thing. I, I feel like that's so lacking, that sort of initiative, that sort of persistence to go after what you want. Uh, and you know, I feel like a lot, of, particularly with millennials, I got a guy here saying like millennials are, it's, it's funny because it's a double-edged sword, right? These are people who want meaning, who want purpose. And yet mm. you talked early on about work ethic. And I've, I've seen this happen with people I work with, right? Who want results on day one, who want at the farm on day one. And then I've seen the opposite where they'll work. You know, they, they, I think it's a sort of distinction between, uh, you know, 50 Cent had a really good way of putting this in his book. He said, you know, don't sacrifice the long-term potential for the immediate payoff. And yet I feel like people are always looking for the immediate payoff nowadays. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I mean, because we get it, right? We get hits of dopamine um, and all kinds of stuff. For all kinds of things that we do today. So it's kind of hard to give up that, that addiction, uh, if you will. You know what? Yeah. Um, I never quite connected these dots until you, you laid out the question as you were, and we've just been so readily talking about, um, you know, your experience with, with the parents and all that kind of growing up. I think part of why I saw the opportunity was because from, from, you know, sort of the high school age and otherwise, again, my parents were kind of like, well, you figure it out. Again, not in a non-supportive way, but I, I was in charge of my own destiny. I, from then, wow. I knew that that was mine to course and not to be sort of satisfied or saddled in one particular way, but that that was part of it. And part of it, so part of that came because I was just given the guidance to to allow it to happen, to to see it for what it was and just recognize where I was headed and kind of go, is that is that part of it? And then other parts is just like, screw it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Is that little voice in the back of your head, right? Because part of the, you know, I find myself in multiple um, scenarios kind of just hitting the go button anyway, right? Rather than hesitating on the entry key, do I do or do I not? It's just kind of like, what are the repercussions? They're not bad. So what? So what? I don't get a job? You know, who cares, mm-hmm. right? I, I don't get lots of jobs. But yeah. it is, I mean, in today's world, it's very hard. I, I have to think when people are really on a job hunt to even craft what you want or to know what there is. I mean, the enormity of what's available and the enormity of titles or job functions or things that you could do, um, it really is limitless um, at this yeah. at this point to be able to craft re- exactly what you want. But I grew mm. up the way, I mean, it sounds similar to you, especially with this respect for authority kind of stuck in my yeah. head. Indian right? parents, and are that- you kidding? Respect for authority is an understatement. <laughs> like respect for authority, no, more like worship authority. <laughs> it's true. And assuming that the older, wiser, whomever, they have authority because they know, right? So to default yeah. to the fact that they do. And so it does take some like counter-programming or deliberateness to kind of mm-hmm. go, well, hang on a second. I don't, I don't have to take that assumption as anything more than an assumption, right? So how do I buck yeah. against it? 
Yeah, I think that this is something that, you know, and I've only learned this, you know, probably from talking to a thousand podcast guests, but, you know, we had mm-hmm. David Epstein here who wrote this book called Range, um, which you may be familiar with given, you know, your background. But, uh, you know, we're talking about sort of how people who actually figure out later uh, in life what they want to do. He said in the beginning, their income and their sort of success trajectory tends to be, you know, a lot slower than other people's. But then he said, if you look at the actual graphs, it goes off the charts as they get older. And mm-hmm. this is something I wonder about, you know, based on your background, you know, somebody who, who works at a place like Eureka Ranch. So one thing I, I started to see when I when I look back to college, I thought, you know, people are making like major life decisions when they've only lived a fraction of their lives. And they're making all this, you know, all these decisions based on a limited number of data points. It's like, hey, the person who decides they want to be pre-med or, you know, become a doctor before they've ever set foot in a hospital or ever taken a science class. Like, I remember, you know, we're Indian, so doctor is like, you know, the, the most noble thing you could do. And my sister is a doctor. And I remember telling my mom once, was like, I hate going to the hospital. I get sick all the time. And I remember jokingly, she's like, don't worry, you'll develop immunity. Like, what the hell? <laughs> you know, like, I was like, all I know is from all these hospital visits, I have no desire to be a doctor. Uh, but, yeah. you know, like, why do you think that is? And, and how do we change it more importantly? Like, how do you yeah. encourage this exploration, you know, at an early age and, and particularly within the context of an education system? So true, right? Well, and I think the education system, you know, to some degree, again, it, it depends on certainly the region, the area, all that kind of stuff and their progressiveness. But I actually, you know, in our local school district here, there was a couple of that. It was several years ago, the superintendent gave a talk. I thought it was brilliant. One of the lines that he said was something along the lines of, we aren't teaching your, your kids for today's work environment. We have to anticipate not only the future, but what role they'll actively bring to that new future that we can't even imagine, right? So we have to teach them to think. And so I, I think the more that that's nurtured in an educational environment where they're taught to, to think and problem solve and imagine and create, you know, and, and think systemically about what kind of impacts there can be. Like, I think the more that that happens and the more we can nurture that, I think that that will vet itself in a greater degree. The trouble is, obviously, lots of schools are set up in silos, especially as universities, right? You have to pick a, not only, even if you don't have a major, you still have to pick the discipline within which, you know, get, let's get kind of close, right? Are you in the, yeah. in the business school? Are you in the, you know, architecture school? Are you in whatever that is? You know, I would love to see more, you know, as I, and as I think yeah. back, you know, in college, you're really, I mean, let's, we were learning some basics in high school and junior high and, and all those kind of things. In college, we're learning how to learn, how to be independent, re- really, truly yeah. how to think, how to connect, right? Some, some higher order, order types of things. You know, as I look back, I'm kind of like, why did I even major in what I did? I majored in a bit of a generalist's path. You know, at the end of the day, mm. it was marketing. But wouldn't it have been cool if I'd gone and ended with a, with a, you know, an architecture degree so I could actually do that discipline? I still learned how to think. And the whole thing, you'd mm-hmm. have to learn how to think. And how many people do you know who went to, you know, school? I mean, our IT uh, head of our team, who's, who's brilliant, brilliant at our company, he was an education major. Like, how many people actually <laughs> get a job yeah. in the thing that they were intending to get a job on? I mean, I think totally. you're so right. Like, the career progression, it's, it's, unima- it's truly unimaginable. You can't imagine what it's like to work. So just go somewhere and work that's interesting um, yeah. to get the life experience that you want. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Life is full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time. And now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. You know, every time I think about the beginning of my career, there's one conversation that always comes to mind and, and stands out forever. Like I, I was an intern at Sun Microsystems back in the day when people would actually hire me to work at a company. Uh, <laughs> and I wanted to, you know, I got an internship at Sun Labs, which is the last place somebody like me belonged because Sun Labs is basically all the smartest people at Sun who are like PhDs in engineering. But I had a, a professor whose you know, uh, daughter was somebody who worked there. And so she hired me. And I knew that that wasn't what I wanted to do. But I remember meeting with this young sales guy. They had this sales program called The Best of the Best. And he was 25 and just had a baby. He, you know, you know, I said, hey, can I come to your office and do an informational interview? And I never forgot this because what he turned, said turned out to be so true. He said, I bet you have your whole life planned out. And he said, I'm going to tell you right now, none of it is going to go according to plan, mm -hmm. <laughs> which... You know, I look at that like I thought, you know, by 25, I would be, you know, working in sales at some large software company. And by the time I was 30, I was like, I hate working in sales and I never want to work in sales. Um, <laughs> but yeah. So let's talk about uh, something you said earlier. This was uh, about case studies, you know, and I, I alluded to this idea of the things you can't learn from reading books. So, you know, after getting out of business school and starting a business, like I came to the conclusion that going to business school doesn't teach you a damn thing about how to run a business. Mm -hmm. It teaches you how to be an employee in somebody else's. But you know, you brought up case studies. And I, you know, when I wrote that piece about the things you can't learn from reading books, I said, you know, like I could read every relationship book under the sun, which I have. And I promise you, you know more about relationships than I do because you're married, um, which <laughs> teaches you far more. And I think business is kind of the same way. You know, like you look at a case study, I was like, a case study is static. It doesn't account for the variability of the fact that you have to deal with people who are idiots. You have to deal with politics. You have to deal with motivation issues like it's just a static thing so you try to go out into the real world and apply this thing so how do you resolve that sort of tension between the two things it's not like it's completely useless and on the flip side of that it's almost like a kid who starts a lemonade stand is more qualified to run a business than somebody who goes to harvard business school yeah absolutely absolutely you know i, I yeah drives me nuts and we do a lot of um educational content and those kind of things and, and we don't do case studies either for those exact reasons right of this because it, it oversimplifies the scenario and that's not real like just like anything right you, you can't anything in life doesn't have one variable and if you change this one variable then everything it, it's complex right it's systemic it's it's got so many more pieces to that and what I don't love about case study format types of things is it, it gives you this false feeling of confidence. Like, like, oh, I could have figured that out. I could have done it. Clearly, blank, blank, blank did X and they should have done Y. Clearly, Blockbuster should have adapted their business. If I was there, I would have. <laughs> I mean, they, they weren't, you know, right? They weren't idiots at, at there either, right? They had that 
it's the complexities and the nuances of the whole entire system that you lose in a simplified case study form. Even the lens of how it's how it's referred to, right? Even in the lens of how it's written, you just yeah. preclude certain results, right? Gets you to a certain place. And, you know, there's a reason to do it. I, to me, the greater learning experience, to your point of, of doing the... Um, of doing the lemonade stand is how do we get kids closer to the work? How do you get them doing the real thing, right? How do even in a false environment, but there's plenty of real environments to do that level of learning or even have, have them chart their own path for what that level of learning looks like. But something that says yeah. they've done the full cycle of, of a scientific method, uh, you know, of trying something, experimenting, learning, adapting, and coming around doing something else. I think there's a lot more, not only satisfaction to solving a problem, but also personal growth that comes mm-hmm. through the reflection of going through something in that way. I mean, there's, uh, to me, there's no better teacher than, than real stuff. Yeah, well, it's funny, because, you know, when I, when I teach courses, you know, to our online community, one of the things that I say over and over, and I'd probably beat like a dead horse on the show is to tell them, I want you to consider the possibility that everything I'm telling you is utter bullshit, because it might be <laughs> in the context of your life, like I might not have advice. And I, you know, the person who taught me with this is a former podcast guest, who would show up to our calls with an infant in tow. And I realized I was like, wow, I'm a single guy. My productivity strategies are nonsense. You have a very different life. And she made me so aware of that, that I realized I had to caveat anything I said with the idea that, you know what, you need to think of this in the context of your own life, which is something that I think is so often overlooked when, you know, even when people come and listen to people like you teaching on our podcast, or when they go and study with personal development gurus. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and to me, that's the bit. So we talk and, and I have no measure for this other than the look in someone's eyes. <laughs> but we sometimes say we were looking for the mindset flip and you can see the flip. You can see a yeah. mindset flip in someone, right? Where some piece of thing or some piece of material or some culmination of multiple, you know, sort of new map dots in their mind connects and they suddenly see, it's kind of like, um, you remember the matrix, right? Where all of a sudden Neo's stop seeing zero or start seeing zero and ones versus, you know, yeah. the world around them. And he saw beyond the code. There are moments like that where people, I think with a certain level of aha can see how they've sort of trapped themselves in what they're doing and, and how really there's many more, you know, open scenarios, but it comes when you're doing that synthesis of what is this new knowledge doing to affect my life each day? And how am I going to be therefore different because of it? It's that synthesis, I think, that makes it sticky, right? When you really can embed it into, oh, the concept of I should use stimulus to help me come up with, you know, a new idea for something. Well, where can I find stimulus? Well, how might I have worked that in my, in my regular life? Let me try it in my regular life. It's funny, mm-hmm. uh, now that you mention it, so we uh, teach these courses in innovation and we have certifications against them, right? And so it's not, requ- even though mostly it's it's mostly folks that have business or in business or interested in business, right? So sometimes a company will pay for it on behalf of an employee. And when it comes time to actually put those things in action, part of the course is you have to do it on real stuff. And the question's often, what, what counts as real stuff? And as far as we're concerned, real stuff is just real stuff. Like it doesn't have to be for your day-to-day job. It could be for your other thing, you know, for your for your nighttime job, for your, you know, thing you're trying to spin up, for your family, for your church. Like whatever's real to you, connecting new knowledge to what's real in your life every day, wherever it is, to us creates more pull, more confidence, more drive, more intrinsic motivation than anything else that's superimposed yeah. to somebody. So it's just mm. cool to see that. I feel like it happens a lot more often. Well, let's let's do this. Let's shift gears a little bit. Uh, you know, I, I I was trying to figure out sort of where I wanted to have this sort of key takeaway be. And I know on on your website, one of your talks is you know driving your eureka, how to find, filter, and fast track big ideas for your career com- company or community. So let's talk about that because I think you know at the core of what we're trying to do, even at Unmistakable Creative, is to help people make their ideas happen. And what I wonder is, you know, th- there are numerous questions, obviously, that come from this because I feel like we could talk for just that for probably three hours uh, about that for mm-hmm. three hours because it's such a big topic. But um, what is it that separates people who make ideas happen from those who don't in your experience? Uh, and then filtering bad ideas versus good ideas, you know, and how much of this is tactical and how much of this is mindset? Which yeah. I realize I've just asked you like four questions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, golly. Um, I'll try to be, um, um, mindful about, yeah, to your point, right. So much to talk about. Um, I think it starts with the premise that, um, 
the the thing that to to not worry about most, but but is anybody can learn how, and I think you have a shared similar philosophy, right? Anybody can learn and do and and create and be innovative and get something done. Um, it's just about you know learning and investing in that. Um, so it's not some superpower that people are born with. Many have a certain ways to create for sure when they're born that are unique, but anybody can get to that same place. Even the most logical, analytical, you know, human, uh, can be that mm-hmm. thing. And I think part of, so part of that, part of, you know, having a cool, you know, getting to a cool idea is one thing, making it happen, um, is a series of other things, right? It's, it's leveraging the diversity that's around you and appreciating that for what it is. Um, but also, I mean, it's a bit of a, a repeat for me, I guess, as we've been talking, but is, is the notion of thinking of everything as a system, you know, and yep. systems thinking. And so if it's a system, right, if I have a new idea and I'm thinking about it systemically about how do I make it happen, well, you can break it down into pieces and parts and prioritize your work against where are the biggest risks. And um, I think that's probably one of the biggest things I'll see is shifts inside a human person. When they mm-hmm. look at an idea with like eyes just wide, like I don't know how to make that happen. That just seems impossible for whatever reason. Either it's technically infeasible, or I don't see how people would resonate with that, or I'm super excited, but I'm, I don't know where to begin. Those kinds of things. Um, by naming it, and this is such a more psychology side of things, but by naming, okay, so what is it that you think is the biggest risk for this idea, right? So the the idea isn't bad or good. But let's just talk about risks, right? So what's the, what do you think the biggest risk is? Well, I, I think the biggest risk is customers don't care. Okay, fine. So you think we could, we think we run an experiment to figure out if that's true or not? Yeah, for sure we could. Well, how could we do that? How could we right-size that? We have to do it really fast, really cheap. Let's make ourselves do it in, in seven days. How could we do that? Well, I mean, I could go field the, no, smaller, smaller. Don't field the study. Don't, don't hire a consulting agency to field the study. Who are, do you know five people that could be customers? How about we go talk to them? Just that, just that little bit. Not that you have to get rid of all the risk, but just to make it small enough to be manageable that you go, okay, well, I can see this could work actually. But what I learned in that actually was my idea also needs to change because of what I learned. Like having that, you know, frankly thing that we all learned in, I think it was third grade or second grade, if I'm trying to remember my kids, when we learned the scientific method, I feel mm-hmm. like we learn that with discipline and we apply it to the sciences for sure. But we forget in business school, back to what we were talking about before, like in, in proper and prudent business school, we learn the four P's of marketing and these other things. But we forget like, dude, the scientific method, pretty darn uh-huh. good for figuring out if your theories are right. <laughs> you know, yeah. And it's been proven how many times. But But I think sometimes we... And it's been talked in lots of ways, fail fast, fail cheap, all those other kind of things. But that truly is that truly is the magic moment. I think today more than ever, the thing is faster. If I were to tell anybody, you know, piece of advice, stop, stop waiting, you know, take a bad anything out anywhere and do it faster and get, get feedback faster and go around and around faster. It will drive you and it will drive the innovation too. Yeah. Well, yeah, I just reminds me of that Reed Hoffman quote where he says, you know, if you shipped a product, if you're not embarrassed by the first version, you shipped it too late. Uh, but you know what? You talked about this idea of systems and I, I love this because 90% of everything that we teach, even in our, our online, you know, uh, prime community where we're talking to, to people about making their ideas happen. I have used the metaphor of a factory. I said, look, you're basically running a factory where the only innovative thing you do is the creative part. The rest of it runs like an assembly line. So even, you know, for our podcast, literally, I joke that I'm the most useless employee at Unmistakable Media because talking <laughs> to people like you is the only thing of real value that I do. Everything else has to be done by uh, other people. And it literally runs like an assembly line. It, you know, It's like once you and I are done with this, it basically gets entered into a database. And from there, the entire process is automated and gets handed off to each person who needs to do something with it until somebody hears it. And I think for creatives in particular, that idea is so... First off, that they resist systems and structure because they think that systems and structure actually get in the way of their creativity when it's actually the opposite. So I'm curious, like, what is your uh, experience with that? I mean, I want to talk about sort of designing systems that are effective, particularly for creative people and knowledge workers, because I look at knowledge work today and I'm like, this is so inefficient. No wonder nobody is getting anything done at work. <laughs> so true. Yeah, I, yeah. You know, I, I have again from the from the creative side of the community for sure, right? This, this, 
rearing up against systems because it feels like it feels like you're letting go of what is creative and energizing about a process or a system, you know. But what I yeah. one of my favorite quotes about systems is from Deming, right? He's like ninety four percent of the problem is systems, six percent is the worker, right? It's rare systems aren't good or bad; they're actually neutral. But it's how we've designed the system and what its aim is is really what you know, gets people in trouble. Because sometimes, especially I think the, the where systems have gotten a bad name is companies have used them for governance and it starts mm-hmm. to feel like bureaucracy. It starts to feel like red tape. It starts to feel like yeah. a burden. It starts to feel like I'm being controlled by the man or whatever, you know, however we want to say it. But it's, it's um, management making sure that the workers do what they're supposed to do and execute on time, right? And do it, execute as they will. But the trouble is systems... You know, and this isn't this isn't original to my thinking. This is quality. This is this is goes back to the to the eighties and earlier uh, with the work of Deming is to say systems can be that can be creative energy in creating them, right? The, the creating a system and and recreating a system is actually mm-hmm. some of the best best sort of ROI on time that, that there is, right? Because systems yeah. impact and then everything you do within them. Um, and, and it, you can't get away from them, right? Systems will exist whether you design them or you don't like they come mm-hmm. to fruition and you can be, um, in the driver's seat of that. And I think a lot of times when people are creative and working within a system, I think the value of the system is you get to spend energy to your point, right? On the podcast, you get to spend energy on the what, not the how, mm-hmm. like spend yeah. your, your creativity on you know, that thing and, and creating that thing as opposed to the steps you need to get there or the process or systems that you need to be putting yeah. into place. But it, it can be liberating. The best systems are liberating for for creative folks across the board because it gives them, it gives you a, a path, right? It, and it gives everybody this clarity, right? You're doing this, I'm doing this, this is how we're going to work together. Like creating some of those things, you can change the whole system if you want to but getting that mm-hmm. sort of map down together it can make you all virtually more productive more collaborative you know heading yeah. towards the same thing in a more meaningful way yeah i mean it's funny you say that because i was, I was meeting with my accountant today and yesterday and he was like what is your sort of growth plan i said dude i'm like we spent the entire year building out systems because we've done the most important part which is the content and the product like we've got that bar now the only way we can do this at scale is with really good systems so mm-hmm. i, I want to wrap this up in the context of like a really practical example just so people have sort of something concrete to to sort of think about um and that is let's say that you know just let's use a really simple example a blogger who publishes a blog post every week and runs a newsletter if we were to create a system for that for somebody listening what would that look like at sort of a high level yeah well, to me, there's kind of three, I would say three buckets of systems to be thinking about, right? Because especially as you're moving any project or thing from sort of beginning to end, one is how do you create it? One is how do you communicate it, right? How do you talk about it? And then how do you make it happen or commercialize it in some way? So to me, it's about thinking about systems that can make all those aspects um, easier, Right. So systems to create. So if I'm looking in my blogger and I'm looking for content, right, I can create a system that makes it easier for me to know what to blog about or how to construct the blog or where to find inspiration for the blog. So I'm not, you know, thumbing my fingers and going, okay, so (laughs) my topic this week is X. Where do I begin? No, like if I build a system for creating ideas for that blog, then it becomes easier for me to do it and I can actually expand a lot more. But then also systems for, you know, communicating. Like once I got a cool concept, then, you know, how am I going to write that, express it? Are there better systems for how I write or how I communicate or the the tenor, the tone? Like how can I set it up so that it's, again, it's, this isn't about, this isn't about reducing to the, to making it easy, right? Mm-hmm. Unless your goal is to make it easy. The, the idea of a system is to make the work richer. I would think for a blogger, how can I make the work richer by creating a system that allows me to take some things off my plate and not have to work so hard to figure out so I can take my work quality up so I can get better readership so I can get higher results with my business. So I'd have a system for create or communicating. And then I'd have a system, I'd think about systems for commercializing, for getting it out, for getting new, um, new readership. And those systems, again, they can be all kinds of, they can exist, they cannot exist. 
Maybe my system's about how do I get more people to pass it on? I create a system for that. Maybe my system's more about how do I get more notoriety so that my blog is referenced more? Well, you'd create a different system for that, right? So there's all Mm -hmm. kinds of ways to take what you have and bring it to the world in ways that, you know, transact whatever you want to transact. To me, it would be those, those three systems. But with all of them, again, the idea isn't, uh, again, in this use case of, of being the blogger, but I think it's a use case that, that transcends a lot of different groups and a lot of different energies and areas is, it's not about, systems isn't about taking the work product and making it more efficient or more effective, mm-hmm. though they will do that. They will absolutely do that in spades. What systems provide you is the opportunity to make something even more remarkable, right? To spend your energy on things that really cr- require design and craftsmanship and taking something to the next level. Um, yeah. Great systems, I think, can do that, right? Can bring about that kind of thing. Totally. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I was telling one of my friends, I said, you know, it's amazing. We've gotten the system for producing the podcast. So dialed down, like I literally don't, I can go for three weeks without having a conversation with my audio engineer and somehow everything just happens. Yeah, right, right. Because you've got a system that works and it's funny too, human systems, you know, there, there are work systems and there are processes, right? Processes tend to be more, you know, taking a list of activities versus a system yeah. is usually something that's more interconnected parts, you know, of, of a greater whole. But the thing that I found really interesting about systems as we've been doing more work on them is you can map a system, right? So, so you mm-hmm. can take and you can put, you can put, usually put a system on paper. Maybe it's a flow chart, right? Maybe it's arrows. Yep. Maybe it's, here's, here's the steps <laughs> that they get done. But recognizing that if you're working on not widgets, but humans, Mm-hmm. Then there's variability in the in the system. There will be. There'll be natural points where there's higher variation, right? When I get this, you know, and I write the blog, I notice that sometimes I it, it, it just comes right out of my fingers and it's done in, you know, half an hour. Other times it takes me four days to get it down. Like there's a, there's a lot of variation in that, right? Mm-hmm. So why does that come from? But then also looking at your system, and this is the bit that I think is unique about human systems and saying, where are the points in my system where there's positive and negative psychology? Meaning just simply that, right? So where, where are the points in my system where people go, people in the system that are working with me go, yeah, that was, that was really fun. Or they're smiling or they're happy, that simple happiness versus what parts are they like, oh, this part really sucks. <laughs> and it's hard to get up in the morning knowing I have to do this step, right? Addressing those things can make the whole system even better. And then running experiments and making the system and optimizing it you know, to a greater degree. There's a lot of wonderful yeah. craftsmanship that can go into that, especially when, again, you're working with others and you're trying to get the best um, out of a team. I think there's a lot of opportunity for people to think about the craftsmanship of system design. I think it's an mm. exciting place. Yeah. Wow. Um, well, I, I feel like this is a really deep rabbit hole and we could talk for like three hours about all this stuff. <laughs> I agree. It is. It's all around us um, in a big yeah. way. Uh, well, I want to finish with my final question, which is how we finish all of our interviews at the Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? I think um, it's them truly being meaningfully unique, right? What they're doing um, adds value to the world. It brings purpose and clarity and people can see the worth of the work, but it's also novel, non-obvious. Um, and does something in a way that just catches people's attention because it's different and different is good. We've got a lot of same um, and the world could use different, but they could also use meaning. So I think when you're meaningfully unique, I think that, that's the ticket. Amazing. Uh, well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story and your insights and your wisdom with our listeners. Where can people find out more about you, your work and everything that you're up to? You can find more about all of us at eurekaranch.com. Yeah, all kinds of fun things that we're into and doing and um, follow along with us on our creative adventures. Fantastic. And for everybody listening, we'll wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, 
HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.